Hey, welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And let me tell you guys something really unbelievable. I have a very, very special guest on today. I met this woman in Vegas at an event and she actually blew my mind. Her energy, her you'll see. She is an amazing lady. I want to welcome my good friend. We're like BFFs. Okay, not necessarily. But anyway, I want to welcome my good friend, Susie Q, to the show. Susie, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You know what? I, I You have a last name, <laughs> apparently. No way. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just Susie Q? <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, you know what? I am so excited to have you on. You have you have an unbelievable story and I'm I'm excited for you to share it with everyone. So, um Susie, first off, um why don't we start with you telling everybody where you were born and raised? All right. Well, I was actually born and raised in a very small town in Western New York, actually uh, not too far east from where you are. I grew up about two hours south of Buffalo and about an hour and a half east of Lake Erie in a uh, very small town home of Cuba cheese. Wow. My wife, my wife is from um, Erie, PA. Okay. Yeah. So you guys are up there in the, the, polar belt i mean it, the snow you guys get up there is ridiculous yes needless to say that is why i now live in arizona right <laughs> right yeah i don't blame you so so you um you were born and raised up there and and so you, that's where you went to high school and everything okay yep. and did, then, you, um, did you go to college Nope. As soon as I graduated high school, um, I had actually entered into the delayed entry program with the Army oh, and wow. during my senior year of high school. And uh, I left within about three weeks of graduating high school and went into basic training at the ripe old age of 17. You went into basic training in the Army at 17. Yep. I turned 18 in basic training. <laughs> I didn't think I didn't think women did that kind of thing. <laughs> All right, now now every single woman's gonna call me a a, a pig. I, I'm I'm not. I'm just playing. So so, wow, that's insane. Yeah, so it was what, definitely an uh, experience. I guess. So what what happened from there? What did you stay in the army forever? What what happened? So uh, two weeks after I graduated AIT, which is where you go and you learn what your job trade is, I was sent over to Germany. And as soon as I got off the plane, they called several of us to the side and told us not to bother unpacking our bags because our unit was actually getting ready to leave for Saudi Arabia and the Gulf War within uh, the next couple of weeks. So by the time I landed on soil in Germany within six days, I was in Saudi Arabia. Wow. Yeah. At 18. At 18. Oh my God. 
Now, mind you, I had just had a conversation with my dad during the holidays, promising him that the army said I just finished training. There's no way I was going over. So when I had to make that phone call to him, I'm the oldest of five. So when I had to make that phone call to him, it was a, um, so dad, remember when I told you this? <laughs> well, well <that> changed. <laughs> yeah, apparently I lied, dad. So, yeah. so you, here you are. Wow. 18 years old, fresh out of boot camp and in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, right? Hello. What happened? Hello? Oh, there, there. Yes. A little, little internet burp. Excuse us. Okay. So, so you were 18 years old in Saudi Arabia. Yes. Wow. And what happened? Were you uh, like, uh, like in the army, what did you do? Were you like an infantry? What, what? No. So at the time when I went in, women still weren't allowed in combat roles. Uh, Initially, I wanted to go in. I love photography and that's what I wanted to pursue. So I actually wanted to go in to be a combat photographer. And uh, prior to me leaving, they told me that job wasn't open any longer. So I had to find something else to do. So I chose Signal um, to do the communication. One, I chose it not because I was like, oh, hey, I just want to go and do communications, but I was upset because I couldn't do the job that I wanted to do. So then I chose something that I didn't have to do a commitment of four years in case it was something I decided I didn't want to do. Uh, so I wound up basically, again, this is in 91. So it was prior to the internet age and yeah. all of that. So my job was working in what they call the uh, message center and all of the information that came in from the Pentagon and London came through our switch. And then we made sure it went out to the front lines and to the, um, other units that needed the information and then vice versa, it came back through us and then went back where it needed to be. So where I was stationed was right outside of where general Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell were. Oh my God. So you knew, like you knew everything that was getting ready to happen be way before anybody else. Yes. I had a, an extensive top secret uh, background check and all of that done. So, <laughs> so what are some of the secrets? You <laughs> that? Oh, that was a long time ago. I'm just kidding. So, so wow, holy crap, that's insane. Yeah, so you were in, that's that was was that the first that was that the first Gulf War? Yes, Is that right. Oh yep. my, my brother was in the Navy, was in the first battle group over there on a carrier. Yeah. 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 So, so holy moly, that's intense. Yeah. And it's crazy because I actually met another veteran in a Facebook group that I'm part of. And he, uh, somebody had posted a picture of the Scud missile that had been blown up by the Patriot downtown Riyadh. And when I saw the picture of it and I looked in the background, that picture shows where our message center was. And I was standing on the plat platform when that scud came in and I saw the Patriot blow it up. 
And of course we couldn't leave where we were at. And initially I thought, oh man, that was so cool. Years later I realized, oh, hey, I think that was meant for us. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have my name on it. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. Wow. So so how long how long were you over there? Uh, I was over there for six months and then I uh, went back to Germany and then I was over there until my unit deactivated and went to Georgia. Wow. Georgia here in America. Yes. Uh, in Augusta, Fort Gordon. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a little bit safer than being in the middle of Scud missiles fired at you. <laughs> Holy crap. So, um, well, and thank you for your service, by the way. That's absolutely is my honor and my privilege. You're amazing. That's, that's one of my regrets. My, my best friend and I signed up to go into the army in high school into the buddy system, right? Or we were getting ready to, and he signed the paperwork and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and he was not happy about that. So, yeah. Anyway, is so. he still your friend today? <laughs> no, we're not friends anymore. So that's all right. That's all right. Some, someday, someday he'll be telling people I knew that guy when he backed out of the buddy system. Um, but anyway, so so you, um, I mean, was it was it? Um, I don't know how to ask this. What I mean, did you? did you see, you didn't see any combat yourself, right? Like, no, I didn't see any initial combat, but I did see a lot of the devastation and the destruction afterwards. Yeah. Um, especially after the ground war, as the troops moved forward and advanced forward and stuff. Um, so I actually have some pictures of some of the things that I saw over there that I I haven't looked at them in years just because there's so much associated with it. And, yeah. you know, it's one of those things with the PTSD that you don't realize until later that there's certain smells that trigger. And even looking at the pictures reminds me and brings certain smells back. Um, and it's just one of those that, you know, I, I don't need to look at it. I saw it. I saw it in real life, but again, because I wanted to be a combat photographer and I had my camera over there, I documented a lot of stuff um, just to have. And now I'm glad that I did, but it's not something that I just want to say, oh, hey, look at this, because it's yeah. not pretty. <laughs> right, I'm sure. Gee, many Christmas. Lauren Jackson said, look how cute my mama is. <laughs> uh she just aged you. Way to go, Lauren. That's okay. <laughs> well, being in the first Gulf War kind of ages you too a little you bit. You know what, though? It's So when you fast forward to my story and yeah. when I was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 20 and I had a six-month-old son, it's one of those that, you know, when – when you're laying there, you're 20 years old, you're yeah. a soldier in the army, you have a six month old son and they tell you that you have cancer and you have a 50, 50 chance of surviving five years. You celebrate every birthday, you celebrate every milestone, you celebrate everything. So yeah. I am very proud to say that I am 47, almost 50 and woohoo. <laughs> you, you're awesome. Hey, I'm 51, so I don't, but see, when I hit 50, I was like, all right, we're not celebrating anymore. This is getting to be real. <laughs> not 
not me. I'm going to be celebrating till I'm 120. There you go. Well, I'll <laughs> celebrate with you. So, so, so you were, um, I mean, there's not a whole lot to fast forward through. You're like 18 years old at this point. Are, were you still eight? So yeah, you were 18 still when you got back to Georgia and, and, no, right? I, turned, I turned 19. So I turned okay. 19 while I was in Germany, okay. um, you know, which was pretty cool because you're in Germany, you can drink because it's legal yeah. and you're only 19. So, right. you know, um, I enjoyed Germany. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Maybe a, a little too much. But yeah. um, so I left there when I was about 19 and a half and came back to Georgia. Wow. So you were 19 in Georgia and what, what would, what'd you do here? I mean, you weren't, you weren't, um, certainly weren't looking out for Scud missiles. <laughs> so I, I did a different version of our job. Um, while we were in Germany, we actually worked in what's called a fixed messaging center. Okay. And so that's what we were going to do in Georgia. But then my unit got activated and sent to Haiti and Somalia and Kuwait and several other places. But I found out I was pregnant, so I was non-deployable. So then they put me in the what they call the orderly room. And I was in charge of personnel rosters, uh, signing out keys and a lot of inventory things. And basically... You know, I meant to my own horn. I kept the company running because I made sure the captain and the first sergeant were where they needed to be and all of the personnel were accounted for. <laughs> and, and you know what? I can see that quality in you, <laughs> right? Like you just make it all happen. I, yes. I, lo I love that. <clears throat> so, um, well, so at some point here you are pregnant, 19 and a half years old. Um, r running the ship, it sounds like pretty yes. much. And, <laughs> and what happens next? So uh, I have my son in October and it's funny because my um, husband at the time got home. He was actually in Kuwait and he got home less than 24 hours before our son was born. Wow. So that was one of those that was an exciting time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I have my son in October and then I was going to a, um, I had to get a chest x-ray. And when I went to do my chest x-ray, they, I sat in the waiting room. Normally people were let go in about five minutes and I wasn't, my name wasn't called and I thought, man, did I fall asleep and miss them calling my name? So I went up to the front and I said, uh, did you guys call me? And they said, no, the doctor wants to see you. You need to go back and do another chest x-ray. And I said, well, wait a minute, why? And they wouldn't tell me, wouldn't tell me. Well, that was when they found the mass on my lung and that led to a whole round of two weeks of testing and um, all kinds of things. And then I ended up having surgery two weeks after to remove the tumor off of my lung. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And so was it, was, uh, was it malignant? Yeah. So I had a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and basically it was one of the lymph nodes that somehow had swollen and it had actually attached itself to the outside of my lung. 
And when they initially saw it, all of the tests came back negative, the bone marrow test, the scans and all of that. But they said that I still had to do the surgery. Otherwise, the size of the tumor, my lung was probably going to collapse. Wow. So we did the surgery and they removed it. And then it was a few days later that the doctor came in and told me that it came back, that it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then that was when he told me that, he said the statistics at that time was this type of cancer was found in men, mostly men over 50. Well, of course, I was neither of those statistics. Right. And right. so that was when he also told me that I had a 50-50 chance of surviving the next five years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. So his first question to me was, what can I do for you right now? <clears throat> Excuse me. So I was in a military hospital. And they're very strict on who you can have as visitors and who can come on post. And I said, I just want to see my son. So wow. he worked it out and my husband brought my son up to me and he saw me and he started screaming and crying because all he saw were the tubes that were hooked up to me. And he just kept saying, mommy, mommy, I want my mommy. Wow. So it was definitely one of those when I looked at him, all I said was, I want to see my son grow up. You know, why would I go through the things that I went through to be given this precious gift of life and to be taken away from being able to be part of his life? So that was a very, very big changing point in my life. Um, so then fast forward, I started going to radiation treatment and they had warned me that I would lose um, some of my hair. <clears throat> and my hair was a lot longer than it is now. And my son started walking about eight months and we were sitting on, I was sitting on the floor and he was walking towards me. And I think I had been in treatment for about two weeks at this point. And he started falling forward. And when he did, he grabbed for my hair. And as he did, the hair came out in handfuls in his hands. And he looked at me and he looked at his hands. And in his mind, I think he must have thought that he hurt me because he just started screaming. Oh. And that was another moment where I thought, wow, this is, this is really real. This, you know, and of course yeah. it's one of those of, you don't think just about how is cancer affecting you, but how is it affecting other people around you, especially my eight, my eight month old son. Uh, geez. Wow. Before this interview started, I said, I'm going to make you cry. <laughs> I didn't mean that. You don't have to. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, you're, you know, and if I, I don't want to go off, off too far, but when I met you, uh, uh, Jay introduced us, right? I, I think he was just trying to get you to close me. <laughs> Actually, I think it was Mr. Harris that introduced us initially. Oh, Scott, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and so, so, um, you know, I just remember, actually he was, he wanted us to meet. And, and, and I remember like this unbelievable energy coming off of you. Like you're just, and, and I know you're going to get into more of that too, but 
you're right now you're like setting up like hey this is the crap i've been through like and this you haven't even scratched the surface yet <laughs> exactly so, like, i thought i had but uh yeah. now that you know i've progressed this many yeah. years it's yeah. There's just so much more. I guess I'm like Shrek. I'm, you know, I'm like Shrek with all the layers. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, so, so you, um, you went through that's, that, that's pretty emotional. Your, your eight month old son, like, you know, yeah, that's, that's incredible. And, and so you, um, what happened from there? What, what was, what happened? So after I finished my treatment and uh, they gave me the option to stay in the military, uh, but I would be non-deployable. So I would have to stay stateside for the next five years. Right. Or they gave me the option to get out of the military and then continue my treatment through the VA. So when I stopped and I thought about it, I said, you know what, if I only have five years you know, if that's the statistics that I'm given, I want those five years to be spent with my son, not with the army. I loved the army. And honestly, when I went in, it was something that I had planned on doing as a career. Right. So it's funny because when I told you, when I looked at the dates that I ended up choosing today, because today is actually my anniversary of getting out of the military um, in November wow. of 93. So I chose to get out of the military so I could spend that time with my son. Well, I'm honored that you chose this date. Like, wow, that's so cool. That's so cool. So you got out of the army and decided to spend time raising your son, being with yep. your son. So while I was in the hospital, I went back and forth of, okay, what am I going to do with my life now? Because most of us, when we're growing up, we have a very uh, specific thing of what, hey, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. Right. But then life happens and you go off course. And I thought, well, what am I going to do now? I was supposed to do at least 20 years in the military. So I started looking at my different options, the things that I like to do, the things that I enjoyed, and it came down between being an English teacher, being a librarian, or doing hair. Well, being an English teacher meant I had to go to school for four years, was not doing that. <laughs> being a librarian, I found out also required going to school for four years, so I said, well, forget that. So yeah. I looked into doing hair because I had always enjoyed doing it, even though it's funny, I actually have my hair done today and makeup on normally. I either have braids or a hat on and a ponytail, and I normally don't do my hair and makeup. But it was something that, you know, through the years, I had always enjoyed doing it because I found that when I helped other people look better on the outside, it helped them feel better on the inside. Yeah. But I also started learning, especially through the cancer journey that, you know, sometimes when you look in the mirror, all you see is cancer. And that was something that I wanted to change. And uh, so I said, you know what, I'm going to go to school and become a hairdresser, cosmetologist. And that's what I did. And uh, it, the great thing is it allowed me to spend a lot of time with my son. I was able to kind of choose the schedule that I wanted. I was able to meet with a lot of people, share my story, but also hear a lot of other people's stories. And it allowed me a path of getting 
into different things that I never thought I would get into. One of those being, and I had told you before that one of the very first conferences I ever went to on personal development, personal growth was Zig Ziglar when I was in North Carolina. And that was a huge changing point in my life when I did that. That's so awesome. You know what? I, I'm friends with all of his kids and I'm going to make sure they, they hear that. Um, I, I'm not sure that they're watching. Sometimes they do, but um, so that's incredible. I love that. And so, so you, um, okay, but you were a hairdresser and you went to a Zig Ziglar conference. Well, the salon that I worked with was very, very much a part of, you're not just a hairdresser. There's a lot of other things that goes into it. Right. And I had heard about this conference through some other friends and they said, you know, this guy is a very dynamic speaker and yeah. so on. And so I said, you know, what? I'm going to go. And the guy that I worked for at the time actually provided us the tickets so we could go. And uh, it was just amazing just to sit and listen to him, listen to his story. And I thought, wow, I really connect with a lot of things that he's saying, especially, you know, growing up on a, a farm and, you know, being a statistic because where I, where I grew up, my parents were some of the first parents that actually were divorced. So mm. by the time I was in third grade, I had that statistic hanging over my head as well. Right. So there were some things that he talked about that I really resonated with. And I thought, you know what? I might be this small town country girl from Western New York, but I can literally do anything that I want to. And as long as it's legal. And <laughs> so right. that was that was a, a defining moment in my life. And, you know, at that point, I think I was like 22 or 23 years old. Jeez. Wow. So, so you went to a Zig Ziglar um, conference, you heard, you heard Zig speak. Um, and I'm sure I would imagine, I never got to hear him speak. I, I my fault, but you know, I never got to hear him speak, but the, um, I'm sure life took on a new meaning at that point. Absolutely. It was, it was more about at that point realizing I had more of a purpose than just being here to watch my son grow up, that right. there was a bigger purpose out there. You know, when you stop and think about why was I diagnosed with cancer at this age and why am I still here to be able to share? So that was when I got involved with the American Cancer Society. I got involved in the Look Good, Feel Better program. And I actually started working hands on with women that were going through treatment or had just complete, completed treatment, teaching them how to take care of their scalp, different ways they could do turbans, scarves, if they wanted to do a wig, and then also how to do makeup, how to draw on their eyebrows and things like that. That way, when they looked in the mirror, they felt better about themselves. And they, it wasn't just a, hey, this is this is what cancer is and I am cancer. And, and that's kind of been my goal since then is, Cancer was a part of my life. It chose, it made me realize one, I have a bigger purpose Two, that I have to be truly grateful for everything that's happened to me and having cancer. I look at was a blessing because it made me really 
really embrace motherhood and the relationships that I had even more. And it wasn't so much just quantity time with my kids. It was that quality time and really having that relationship. Wow. <clears throat> so, um, and by the way, I keep seeing people share this out. I want to say thank you to everyone who's sharing this out. You've got an amazing story. So, so talk about what um, what started happening from from there. You got involved with the American Cancer Society, doing great things for for women to feel better about themselves. And um, at at some point, you changed careers again, right? Yes. So uh, during that time, I also got involved with the Relay for Life event, which is was the newer movement at that point. And I started meeting a lot more survivors, sharing my story a little bit more. But there also came the time where, where you know, my marriage wasn't working out. And I was living in North Carolina at the time in Charlotte. And my allergies were so bad that I was having to get allergy shots. And there were times that I would be driving to work and I'd have to pull over on the side of the road because my eyes were burning so bad and have to put a washcloth that was ice cold over my eyes just to help calm the burning so I could continue going to work. So I had come out to Arizona. This is, my dad had moved out here when I was in uh, school in the 80s. And when I visited, I didn't have any issues with my allergies. So right. over time, I said, you know what? I really want to be closer to my dad. I want to move to Arizona. I love the weather. I love the desert. Yes, it gets hot out here, but for nine months out of the year, it is just absolutely gorgeous. So I ended up moving out here in September of 2000. By then, my daughter was born. She was born in 96. And... I also knew when I made the move out here that my husband and I would be separating and ultimately getting a divorce. So I knew I needed to get a real job because <laughs> I had I needed something with benefits and I needed something with steady pay. So after we had been out here for a couple of months, I saw an ad in the paper to be a 911 emergency dispatcher with Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. And I thought, hey, I did communications in the military. I can do this. So I applied and I got hired January of 2001. Now, and that was. I have a question though. Like this was in 01. What year were you diagnosed with cancer? The first time was 93. 93. So, and they said five years, 50, 50. You blew that out of the water. Oh, I smoked like, it. Like you, I'm done with that. And, and I, I, I want to ask you about that. My, my, my wife's, uh, my brother-in-law has had, was diagnosed at six years old with leukemia and she actually was his, his donor and did a bone marrow transplant. Oh, wow. she, she was 11. Right. And so, you know, he's 46 or something like that now, but he's been through off and on his whole life so much. It's, it's insane. But one thing about him is he's got just this unbelievable positive attitude about everything, right? <clears throat> the moment that, because I hate, I shouldn't say hate. I can't stand the fact that some doctors do that crap. Like they give you a, a well, here's your sentence. Like, <laughs> like, dude, what? You're not God. Stop that crap. 
like, 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 but like when you, and so that immediately is going to create this unbelievable worry in your unconscious mind, like, oh, or in your conscious mind, like you're constantly concerned about. So when that date came and went and you knew, Hey, I just kicked this thing's ass. Like, how did that feel? It was actually, it was really amazing because I was doing a Relay for Life event and I had my son and my daughter both there. And so my very first survivor lap was with both of my kids. And it was such an amazing thing to not just be surrounded by them, but be surrounded by so many other people that either were in the midst of their journey, had just completed their journey and literally being surrounded by hope and the positivity. But when, when I go back and I look at, you know, some of the things that I went through during my journey, you know, I was 20 years old. I was the mom of a newborn and I was basically very alone. I was in Georgia and my husband was there, but the closest family that I had, my aunt and uncle lived about 45 minutes from us, which, or they lived closer to me when I moved to uh, North Carolina. But at the time in Georgia, my sister was about three hours from me because she was in the military too, but I had no family around me. So I had no one to talk to. I had no internet to search. I had no idea what to expect or, you know, I I didn't have a support system. I didn't know who to reach out to. And my husband was very, it was hard to talk to him because he lost his mom to ovarian cancer when he was 14. Mm. So every time he looked at me, all he saw and remembered was his mom. And so it was hard to have that connection, that relationship. So a lot of my journey, I was completely alone. And even when I was surrounded by by people at that time, when you talked about cancer, there was a stigma attached to it. You know, it was kind of a hush hush thing. People didn't talk about it. Kind of like how mental health has been for a while. There's that stigma attached to it. Oh, you must've done something wrong. You have cancer. And it's funny Mm. because depending on the generation I talk to now, there still is almost that stigma attached to it. And there are still people that are like, oh, so-and-so has cancer. I'm like, yeah. it's okay. You can talk about it. It's right. <laughs> and, wow. you know, so I've always tried to be more positive when I share my story because it was a very dark and scary and lonely time for me. But I also look at, you know what, being in Saudi Arabia with scuds coming at me and being inside my mop suit and, you know, my mask on and the sirens going off and all of that, that was also a very scary time. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it's like, okay, which one is scarier? They're both scary in their same right. But I also knew that in my heart, with my faith, I knew I was going to be okay. Looking at my son he was my hope. He was my drive. He continued pushing me on. Once my daughter was born, and mind you, when my daughter was born, that was when I started having issues with my kidneys. But when she was born, I almost hemorrhaged to death 
because she came out so fast that my internal temperature dropped. I was hemorrhaging. They couldn't get the hemorrhaging to stop. They had to do blood transfusions. It was just, it was massive. Same exact thing happened to my wife. Same exact thing. Yeah. So it's, it's a scary time. And yeah. You know, she had to be rushed out of the room because she was having trouble breathing. Jeez. And so they were dealing with me, my head. I'm thinking, where is my baby at? Right. And, you know, but also knowing, okay, something's not right with me. Um, so that also, you know, changes your perspective. But that was after I went through follow up for that and they told me that I probably shouldn't have any more kids because <laughs> I just saw my, my daughter's response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see it. yeah. I put it up on the screen. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, um, you know, when the doctor told me that I, my body probably couldn't handle having kids again, I wound up after I moved out to Arizona, I actually found a doctor. And after talking to him several times, he wound up doing a tubal ligation because I thought, you know what, I cannot put my life at risk because I have these two kids. And at that time I was now a single mom. Right. And, uh, so the doctor wound up doing the tubal ligation. I got my tubes tied when I was about 28 years old. And, um, you know, it's, it was just one of those it's, it had to happen. And right. I'm grateful that I have the kids that I have. And, you know, for the most part, they're healthy. Um, I say for the most part, because my daughter used to think that, you know, she always had some kind of ailment going on. <laughs> but then I stop and I think about it, you know, my kids have only known a mom with cancer. So how does that affect them? Yeah, right. And that plays a big part in what both of us do now with making sure our health is our, our health is our priority. So yeah. um, anyhow, so 2001 is when I found my next step of going into law enforcement. So did you become a nine, you were a 911 dispatcher? Initially. Okay. And uh, during that time, I, it was a tough, tough job. It's one of those jobs that, I mean, they, they don't get the respect or the recognition that they deserve because it's a job where they go in and they hear people's last breaths. They hear the screams, they hear the cries for help. They are literally that lifeline between that person and help coming. And there were some calls that I took during that time that for a long time really messed with me until I went through the healing process and realized there was nothing that I could do. But December 29th is one of those days that for the longest time, really hit me. And now last year was the first year I could actually get through December 29th without all of the emotions attached to it because of a call that I took in 2000. I don't remember if it was 2001 or 2002 um, during that time. And it was just, it was a really tough call that that's a whole separate thing. I don't really want to talk about, but I mean, I do talk about it, but it's a, you know, it, it was a really tough call. Even my supervisor said, I don't know how you got through that call. She says, re-listening to it was, was absolutely tough. So wow. that, that was, 
a big changing point, but you know, the, the dispatchers go in, they leave their lives, they go in, they put the headset on, whether they're taking the calls, whether they're dispatching the officers, and then they're hearing that side of it, or it might even be a combination of both. But, you know, when they take that headset off and they walk out, now all of a sudden they have to walk back out into their real lives of being a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a husband, yeah. a wife. <clears throat> and they have all of this stuff that's gone through their head. Right. And they have no way of unloading that. And a lot of people look at them as, oh, well, you're just the dispatcher. And there's so much more than that. So, oh, I know. I truly want to give the shout out to those, the men and women that are literally that, that gold line and truly are the lifeline for uh, law enforcement, for, for firefighters, first responders everywhere. Yeah. I, my, my buddy is a, he's a, with the sheriff's office, but his wife is a dispatcher and she's been a dispatcher forever. And I also know um, because of, all my connections in law enforcement and, and working with a bunch of them that, that it's a very high turnover position. I mean, like probably higher than McDonald's. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a tough job. And yeah. The, there are people that I know, some of them were my trainer, some of them, you know, I, I worked with them that they have done this job for 20 and 30 years. And I look at them and I think, wow. But, you know, I was thinking about it last night that you can choose to let the job harden you and harden your heart, yeah. or you can choose to continue to have that compassion, continue to have that empathy and not let it change you and break you. There's going to be things that you're going to deal with, but it's how you deal with it, your resiliency, how you manage it can truly be the change between who you are and what you can continue doing in the world. Wow. So, so you went from, from being a dispatcher though, into, I can't believe we're already 46 minutes into this. Wow. So, so you went and you eventually became, became a, a an LEO, a law enforcement officer. Yes. So the whole time I was going through being a dispatcher, I was a dispatcher for about three weeks. I went on a, uh, ride, a ride along with a deputy and he started asking me a bunch of questions and he said, with your military experience, why don't you go deputy? And I said, well, you know, with my kids being a single mom, that that's just not feasible right now. And I said, you know, if something were to happen to me, what's going to happen to my kids? But also during that time frame of everything that I went through with my treatments, my follow-ups, I... I had a lot of issues with my breathing. I had so much scarring in my lungs because of the radiation that I had and the scar yeah. tissue that I had. So the doctor, when they were doing my lung capacity test, he says, you're probably never gonna be able to run further than from home to first base because I played a lot of softball. And I thought, where goes that doctor with his labels again? I know. Well, Come on, dude. the capacity that I had when I was doing the lung thing, yeah. I almost passed out in the chair. <laughs> right, right. So 
that was another thing I thought, how am I going to run if, you know, I, I can barely breathe. So I went a couple more years and then the same uh, deputy, he became a sergeant and he kept messing with me. And he's like, when are you going to go deputy? When are you going to go deputy? I was like, huh, I'm not going to go deputy. I'm not going to go deputy. Well, then there was an accident in 2004 where one of the deputies, I heard the uh, mic key up and it was about 4.30 in the morning and I kept calling him, kept calling him and there was no response. So I sent a mm. message to his pager, tried calling his cell phone and all of that. And then I told the sergeant, I said, hey, I saw his car radio key up. I said, but I'm not getting a response from him. And of course, this is, you know, back before we had GPS and all of that. Right, right. So we started sending people out to his last known location. I contacted his B partner, asked where he was, you know, the last place he would be at, the area he would be, the normal route he would take back to the district. And we knew that he hadn't been feeling good that day. So, you know, the, it was a frantic search trying to figure out where he was at. So needless to say, we wound up finding him. We had the helicopter go out and a couple of the guys on the squad wound up finding him and he had actually wrecked his car and it flipped. And when it flipped, the radio mic actually either went out the window and hit the ground and keyed up or when it bounced around in the car, but he was actually, we don't know if he was actually ejected. We think um, he was either ejected or he wound up getting out of the car at some point because he was found on the passenger side of the car on the back. So he wound up being transported to, well, he was flown to the hospital. He was in a coma for about six weeks and all of us were at the hospital in the waiting room for during that entire time, you know, I would go to work and then I'd go stop at the hospital. I'd go home, make sure my kids were off to school, go back to the hospital after I got a couple hours of sleep, go back into work. And so I got to know his family and his friends, but that the sergeant, the one that kept asking me, when are you going deputy? When are you going deputy? He was that sergeant. So wow. we were sitting there in the waiting room and he says, you know, there's an opening right now. You can apply to become a deputy. <laughs> oh my God. <clears throat> and even then I was like, I'm not going deputy. I'm not going deputy. And he's like, why are you, you know, so against it? And I said, I just, I don't know. I just, now it's been a few years and I just yeah. not. Well, then I got home that weekend and my sister, who she's a year younger than me, she also went into the military and we are, we have a great relationship, but we're also very competitive against each other. Yeah. And she says, oh my gosh, I finally passed the test for the FBI uh, testing. She says, I start my process so I can go through the academy. So of course me being me said, oh, well, I'm gonna go and apply for the deputy academy. <laughs> Oh my God. Wow. So that was what spurred it. <laughs> You're a competitor. I yep. love that. So, wow. so and it was so, great because she became my training partner. We we trained together. Um you she were both in the same academy. I'm sorry, what? You were both in the same academy? No. Uh, we were training, she was training for the FBI Academy right. while I was training for the deputy oh, Academy. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. 
So your yeah. sister's FBI and you were, you were, that's insane. So, so you, you, um, I think we're going to go over an hour for everybody watching. Um, so you were, um, so you became a deputy in Maricopa County, the home of the pink jails, right? Is that right? Well, it used to be, it's not anymore, but yes, with uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, it was the home of Tent City and the pink underwear. Uh, that's right. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. So, so you, um, you became a deputy and in Maricopa County, right? That's like a, that's like a big County. That's a, there, I yes. mean, I see it on cops, I think once in a while. Yes. Wow. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. Were you ever on cops? <laughs> They actually initially told me I had to be on the uh, Women in Maricopa County, the TV show. Yeah. And I absolutely did not want to do it. Right. And they came out, they filmed me. We did some uh, test shoots and all of that. And they got some great footage because I was chasing a guy down the middle of the street with a knife that had just assaulted somebody. And the, I was trying to figure out what the noise was behind me and apparently the cameraman was running behind me and <laughs> he had it all on video. But oh, wow. I, I absolutely, I just, I was so at that point, I really, I needed my private life to be private and yeah. my family time. When I left the job, I needed it to be me and my family. And I was very, very protective of that. So I ended up not, participating in it because my grandma ended up having cancer and then passing yeah. away. And yeah. so, um, that, that ended up getting me out of it. So I didn't do that. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you, you, how long, and uh, cause I know you're not a, you're not in law enforcement any longer, right? You're, you're Correct. not. So how long were you a deputy with Maricopa County? So I was a deputy just over 13 years. Wow. Again, thank you for your service. Absolutely. So, I, I really enjoyed the job and I did a lot of different things. I did a lot of stuff with the SWAT team. I did a lot of stuff with the negotiators. I was a crisis negotiator. I was a undercover uh, detective and did a lot of stuff with um, with that and then doing patrol. And then the I think the most rewarding is when I started doing community outreach and that, well, that's where the, the post that you saw came up when my supervisor saw that I was being recognized with the uh, coyotes, the hockey game for being a cancer survivor and being a veteran. And, but that allowed me to really get into the community community a little bit more. And I was able to work a lot more with kids one-on-one. -on -one. I was able to work with women and kids that were dealing with the domestic violence, trying to find their way, their new footing. I was working with the homeless outreach with veterans. So it was, it was very, very rewarding. And, and that was one part of my career that I just, I absolutely loved. Wow. And I'm sure, well, I know because you and I spent, I don't know, a long time when we first met i think we talked for like two hours or more like just standing there right 
<laughs> and and so like you have some amazing stories unfortunately we don't have that much time but but so you were in law enforcement for 13 years yes um and and i know you have some unbelievable there's there's a lot of amazing stories in there but um and in in maricopa county is that what part of arizona is that phoenix or is yes. that where Oh, is it? It's Phoenix and it's the unincorporated area surrounding Phoenix. So wow. it's one of the biggest counties. At one time, I think we are actually the third largest county in the country. That's insane. Wow. So you, um, you um, did that for 13 years. What, what made you decide to get out of it? So in 2011, I was diagnosed with cancer again. Okay. And I wound up having surgery and treatment. And then I had to have another follow-up uh, treatment. And then I started having a lot of issues with my kidneys, kidney stones, kidney infections. And for almost three years, I was fighting the infections, the kidney stones. And it had gotten to the point where they had completely changed my diet. They had no idea what was causing the kidney stones. And it's funny because that was when I was really active. I was running half marathons. I did my first full marathon. I hiked part of the John Muir Trail in California. I did some triathlons and all of this while I was fighting the kidney stones and the infections. Mm. And then it got to the point in 2017 that they couldn't get rid of the infection. So I was on antibiotics from February of 2017 through the end of June, 2017. And then they put me on some more uh, prescription medication to try to help balance out the uric acid and, you know, see if that helped. Because at that point I had had four different procedures done to try to break up the kidney stones, to try to get the, you know, them to, move out of my body but what was happening is they were actually calcified in the lining of my kidneys so they put me on my potassium had dropped extremely low yeah. and they put me on a bunch of medication and they said i had to stop all activities because the potassium was so low that if i damaged my heart at all it was going to be be, it wasn't going to be repairable. So I had to give up hiking and running and biking and basically all the things I was doing to keep me sane. And I was in a job at this point where I was doing administration stuff and community outreach. And I was working probably anywhere from 50 to 70 hours a week. So not only with the, sher the sheriff's office. Correct. So yeah. not only was I dealing with my health issues, but on top of it, I was dealing with, I had zero time for myself and right. it just kept getting worse and I started feeling worse. So in November of 2017, the first part of November is when I met with the kidney specialist and he said that basically there was nothing they could do for my kidney stones. He says, you have good kidney function and the only way we could get rid of the calcifications is to go into the back side of your kidneys cut them out he says but that's going to ruin your kidney function he says and i don't want to do that and i said so basically you're telling me i have to live with this and he said yes so at this point mm -hmm. i literally looked like the stay puff marshmallow man combined with the michelin tire man wow i was so inflamed from 
the infection that just, I couldn't get out of my body. I was inflamed from the medication I was on. And then I was also extremely frustrated. So I was faced with, am I going to be able to continue doing the job of a deputy because I couldn't wear my duty belt. I could barely even bend over and I was pretty much wearing flip-flops the entire time because my feet were so swollen and I was wearing stretchy clothes because I just, I hurt everywhere. I was so inflamed in all of my organs. I looked like I was about 18 months pregnant. Wow. So I was at that point of faced with, am I going to have to, you know, possibly stop my career now because of this, because what, there's nothing we can do. I'm at that highest level of working with the specialists. Well, then he threw the other hammer down and said, oh, and by the way, you need to stop drinking coffee because it's contributing to the um, your pH being so acidic. So now I'm looking at not being able to be a deputy anymore and not being able to drink coffee. And I was like, wow, that was really a one-two punch. So I walked out of his office in tears. My husband was there with me and I, I told him, I was like, what do I do now? And he, it's funny because he is a first responder. He's a uh, firefighter, but he's also a soldier too. He's in the reserves. And he, knowing me, he said, are you more upset about the deputy part or the not drinking coffee part? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll be like, I can live with the deputy thing, but coffee, are you kidding me? So I said, you know what? I'm not sure which one really <laughs> is bothering me the most right now. Right. Right. <laughs> Holy crap. So um, I got to the point where I had some different things I was doing for the American Cancer Society and some community outreach events that I had done the first part of November. But I started noticing that I had this downward spiral and my husband was gone for training for the army for about three days. And then he was on shift for about three days. So it was almost a week that I didn't see him. And it got to the point where I would set my alarm and I was normally up about four, four thirty, and in the office before six. And it got to the point where in my head, I'm like, I can't go to work today. Like I, I just can't go to work today. And then it, it got worse and worse. And it got to the point where I wasn't talking to anybody. I literally, because my daughter was at college, my son was in Alaska and then my husband wasn't there. So there was nobody at the house except me and the dogs. And I started going through this really dark place of the frustration. And then the trauma started coming in and just it's like everything compounded on each other. And it, it was very, a very scary place for me. And even though I had taught stress management and resiliency and things like that, when you're in that extremely dark place, you yeah. don't know what to do. You don't know how to reach out because your tunnel vision is so tiny. You're just focused on getting through the next minute, the next hour, the next day. But for probably five days, I didn't eat. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't shower. I literally got up. I fed my dogs. I let them out. I let them back in. And I just was pretty much in zombie mode. So 
going through that, uh, some other things happened. And then I was supposed to see the pain and management specialist to try to help with the kidney stones. And it was the, they had me set up for November 30th, which was also the day I was supposed to go to the range to qualify. So I called the range to see if they could get me in another day. And they said, yeah, come in on the 29th and we'll get you qualified. So I went to the range. They knew I had the issues with my kidney stones. I said, I'm not going to be able to do my rifle or any of the other things because even wearing my duty belt hurts. So I went, I qualified, I came off the range and I was waiting to get my duty ammo issued to me. And I overheard somebody probably 10, 15 feet away from me say something about healthier coffee. Well, needless to say, I zoomed in on that and went flying over there. I was like, what makes it healthier? So <laughs> you probably thought I was a little bit crazy. <laughs> right, right. But it was literally, that was when I heard about the company that I'm with now, the opportunity. And it, it was the products, but it became so much more than the products. And I tell people all the time that not only was SBH that beacon of hope to me, but as I started doing more with the company, I started listening to the CEO and founder, uh, Mr. Nolan, and he was doing some lives and some trainings. That became my, my beacon, almost my lifeline of... I'm here for a different purpose. And if these products help me even a little bit, I'm completely all in. Well, needless to say, they helped not just a little bit, a whole lot. And after some more one-on-one uh, -on -one live trainings with Mr. Noland, I was actually, it was February of 2018. Um, and I was in Kentucky, we were at a, a founder's training. There was only about 70 of us in the room and we had just finished our big company kickoff. I had flown back to Arizona and I got back, went to work on that Monday or Tuesday. And then Thursday they said, hey, we're doing this founder's training. If anybody can make it, it's not mandatory. So I booked a flight. I worked Thursday and Friday, left Friday to fly back out flew into Chicago and drove six hours to get to this founders training. Wow. So I was exhausted. But one of the things that he said was he asked a question of everybody. He says, are you broken time or are you broken money? And that resonated so huge with me because I thought, you know what, I might be making, you know, decent money as a deputy, but I have zero control over my time. I don't even have time to take care of myself. Right. And I thought, uh, he, wow, I am absolutely broke in time. And I left, or as I sat there, and then he said, nothing is ever going to change until you make a change. And I'm like, hmm. So I teared up. I, that was my, okay. He spoke directly to me out of 70 people sitting here. That was my right to my heart yeah. <laughs> and I sent a message to my husband and said, when I get back, I'm going to figure out how much time I have for my FMLA. And then I'm going to work it out and I'm going to resign from the office. And he was at work and he said, okay. <laughs> wow. 
And so hey, do, do you know the Scott Cunningham guy that's dropping comments? Yeah, so Scott and I went through the academy together. <laughs> hey, that's a cool dude. I met Scott too out there with you. So, yep. so you uh, and and Mr. Nolan, I I think that's the first time I've ever said Mr. Nolan. I I always call him Jay, but, but um, he is he is very good at at waking people up for sure. Absolutely. Um, and it sounds like you had that you had that moment. You had that epiphany moment. So I know that, um, and, and we're, we're a little bit over on time and that's fine. It's okay. But, um, I know that you, um, eventually we can fast forward a little bit, but first off the products helped you immensely. I, I heard your, your testimony on that, which was unbelievable. Um, and second, you started doing pretty well financially, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And well, it's, enough to, well enough to get out of law enforcement. Yes. Well enough to not just walk away from what I would have been making if I had stayed. Now, mind you, I was three years from retirement when I walked away from. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Some people might call so me crazy. A lot of people have, they still do, but you know, when I stopped and I thought about it, if I stay here for three years and hit retirement, I'm only going to make 50% of what I'm doing now. So I'm still going to need to get a job or do something. Yeah. So my initial was walk away and be able to replace what that retirement income was. And needless to say, not only was I able to walk away and replace that, but replace and go above and beyond what I was making as a deputy, take care of my health, help other people. And it, you know, there were no lifestyle changes. We didn't have to downsize anything. We didn't have to stop doing the things that we've always enjoyed doing. Uh, my husband didn't have to stop buying truck parts. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. So, so Susie, let me ask you a question and, and, like there is so much more to your story. We could literally, I know because I know you, we could stay on here for hours and, and I'm sure people would love most of that, but like, let, let me ask you a question and, and, you know, you've been through some stuff. I mean, like you've been through some serious challenges that, that life has just thrown at you. And, and in spite of all of it, you are, I'll, I'll never, like I said earlier, that when the moment I met you, I was like, wow, this woman is just radiating. Like the energy is just popping off of you. You're radiating this amazing energy. And, and, and so people go through things. They hit, that's the name of the show, Breakthrough Walls, right? They, they hit these walls in life. They go through these things and then they stay there. They get stuck. And I'm not talking about they stay like poor financially. or I'm talking about up here, they keep telling themselves that same story over and over and over. And, and poor me and everybody with ears, they'll tell everybody with ears, hey, this is what happened to me. This is how bad it is and or was and still is and blah, blah, blah. What was the shift for you? Because I know you, you're not stuck in your crap. 
You're definitely not. I mean, look at that smile. Like you're not stuck in it, right? And you very well could be. Absolutely. You very well could be. You could be like, yeah, well, I've had cancer like 16 times and, <laughs> and you know, and kidney stones, it would have killed Godzilla and like, you know, and, but, but you're not that person. What is the shift for you? What was the, the moment of, or was there a moment where it's like, I, I choose to be different? Um, honestly, from back, even when I was younger, the, I, I think a lot of it came, I was the oldest of five girls. Um, God bless my parents. Yeah, right. <laughs> But my parents uh, divorced by the time I was, I don't remember if I was nine or 10. And I kind of felt like it was my job, my responsibility to take care of my younger sisters. And by this point, I had already been through some pretty bad childhood trauma that is a whole different, um, <laughs> a whole nother broadcast. Yeah. I am writing a book about it though. And it was one of those where there's just has never been any quit in me. There's never been any, okay, just lay here and take it. I've always had so much fight inside of me, literally to the point I stayed in the principal's office for fighting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But, I've never been there. But there's just, it was that internal strength. And um, a lot of it, I think I had a very defining moment in, in life when I was 12, when I met a lady, uh, we called her Grandma Butts. And so Julie, if you are watching this, tell your grandma, I absolutely love her and thank her. Um, she actually was the first person that sat me down and talked to me and explain to me what faith was, where faith comes from. And it's funny because Mr. Nolan did a call the other day and he said the same exact thing that in order to have full faith, you can have no doubt. And she basically said the same thing to me that you can never doubt your faith. You can never doubt where your faith comes from and where that strength comes from. And that that strength comes from within because of what you're given. And um, so I was 12 and I was sitting in a, a pew with her. Everybody else had left the church after it was an Awana's program. And the only reason I was going, again, my competitive nature, because I could compete and win. And the prize for winning was Reese's and candies. Go figure. Right. So she asked me some questions and she sat and she talked with me and then she prayed with me. And she actually was the one that gave me my, my very first Bible. And I still have that Bible and that Bible wow. has been through basic training, through Saudi Arabia, through so many different things. And it's still, it's still with me. It's, it's, you know, dealt with gingerly now because it's, right. um, right. But that was a very defining moment. And I said, you know, I've always felt like there was this bigger presence with me, like I was being protected. 
I just didn't know what it was. And so that has been, my faith has been my biggest strength through all of this and having that faith and having that no doubt, even though my, I feel like my entire life, I was technically a statistic, but one of the reasons I've used my voice so much is because I choose to be more than a statistic and it doesn't matter what scenario it is. And I try to convey that to other people that you are more than a statistic. You are more than what happened to you. It happened to you. It is not who you are. Move on from it. And, you know, again, and I refer back to Mr. Nolan because he has helped so much with my personal growth, my personal development and getting me out of the mindset of being in law enforcement and, and being here to, you know, following this path and, and going forward and really opening up and pulling out yeah. what is deep within me that I didn't know. But he said it truly is as easy is just letting the handles go on that baggage and stop carrying it. And yeah. that's what I chose to do almost, it, well, it's over a year ago uh, when I went to a training with him and I let it go. I share my story now, not because I want the attention and because I want, you know, th the one thing that really bothers me is when I tell somebody, yeah, I'm two-time cancer survivor. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. You didn't cause me to have cancer. <laughs> but they they instantly go to the you know let me treat you as a victim and i'm not a victim i you know i it happened to me i overcame it but i choose to share my story to give others hope and to let them know that you can be knocked down you can be run over you can be backed over again you can be drugged through the mud you can be bloody you can be all of those different things you just can't have any quit. You have to have full faith and you have to continue to rise. And it's through, through the obstacles, through the hurdles, through the struggles that I continue to rise with tears in my eyes, with grit and determination, because I have to be that hope for somebody else because that truly is my purpose and my passion in life. So regardless of what it is, I rise. And what that one thing is, I couldn't tell you. I think it's accumulation of many things, but it truly is my faith in full faith with no doubt. I, I, um, I rarely get chills when I'm interviewing somebody. It happens, but it's very rare. And I've interviewed some amazing people. You, you're you're one of my favorite people in this world, and and like uh, you're, I, I I just freaking love you. I think I thank you for coming on here, being so transparent, sharing your story, your strength your inspiration, like you, you've got so many lives to change and, and help. I, 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 and that's your goal. That's, that's what you live for. And I, that's what I love about you. You're amazing. Susie Q. Thank you so much for having me on. I just, I knew I had to share my story and for you to see that. And we had already connected <laughs> and you said, 
I want you on my show. There was no, yeah. will you come on my shows? I want you on my show. And I'm, okay, well, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, because you weren't telling me no. <laughs> I was going to take a flight to Phoenix. <laughs> I'll do it in person if I have to. So no, you're amazing. I freaking love you. I think you're 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 helping a lot of people. You really are. And I want you know anybody that's watching that doesn't know who Susie is, make sure that you follow her right now on Facebook and uh, wherever else is Instagram and everywhere. Um, you're on all, all the social media platforms, right? Yep. And I'm, I'm trying to get my YouTube channel up and going because my YouTube channel is going to be more about hearing other people's stories, the yeah. stories of hope, the stories of overcoming. And um, it's kind of been on the back burner because as you know, we've got a lot of things going on with Mr. Yeah. Nolan. He's keeping yeah. us busy. And, right. Right. Um, but I do know that me sharing my story and, allowing other people to share their story is part of my purpose. Yeah. Well, you've got a lot of people on here that um, obviously love you for very obvious reasons. Um, you, you have, uh, you're amazing. So I, I, I thank you so much for coming on and sharing and, and being the amazing Susie Q and listen, when you're, um, when your book comes out, when's it coming out? Um, I've got to finish writing it. I have it all laid out. I'm just not okay. putting potatoes into it. So okay. I'm hoping my goal is within the uh, next six months to have it completely finished and ready to go. I wrote my book in seven days. So it's funny because I started typing and I went from chapter one up through about chapter 10. Yeah. Within a few hours, granted, I can type over a hundred words a minute. Sure, sure right. <laughs> Dispatcher nine one one. So um, the, of course, the issues with the head and thyroid kind of yeah. put a damper yeah. on that. So I, I'm definitely getting back into it because it's something Good. I know it needs to be out there. It definitely does. That's why I said I wrote mine in seven days. I want you to. I want you to stomp on the gas because you have an unbelievable story that can help millions of people. Absolutely. So, and, and when your book is done and ready to go out or it's out, we'll, we'll get you back on and, and interview you about your book and promote the crap out of that. Perfect. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much. I appreciate you, Susie. You're amazing. Thank you to everyone that's been on here. Everyone who shared this out, like, you're getting us out so thousands of other people get to hear Susie's story. So thank you so much. Susie, have an amazing day and thank you again. Thank you. And thank you to everybody that tuned in and for sharing it. Yes, thank you. Have a great day. All right. We'll see you guys later. Stay on here, Susie. Don't okay. hang up on me. All right. We'll see you guys. <laughs>